All right. Uh, bring this closer. Hey everyone, um, if anyone is listening, uh, this is another episode of Drew Will Do It. Uh, this is the first solo episode of this show, so this one's going to be very experimental, um, very kind of figuring out what's going on in the moment, um, but that's kind of my skill set. Um, so this episode has no title, has no fun gimmick to it, really. Um, I'm kind of just going through, I uh, fielded a bunch of suggestions online, so we're going to see kind of what I can make of those, uh, just to put out some of the hashtag Bontent that everybody craves. Um, so, I'm just going to go in order. Um, this episode is just me, there's no secret guest that's going to pop out in the last part of the episode or anything like that, so don't expect it. Um, I'm also live right now, I don't know if I'm going to do that in the future. Uh, howdy. Um... But we will see uh, just kind of how things go. Uh, without further ado, I don't have an intro music or an intro segment to this show. So I'm going to just kind of roll with it. The first thing I got submitted, I'm just asking for things that people wanted me to talk about, wanted me to go into uh, more solo, is a uh, listener to the show, Paul, friend of mine, submitted me kind of going over a possible future where Kanye West wins the 2020 election and breaks the two-party system. So let's start off, let's break this one down a little bit. So Kanye West recently, uh, for background for the audience, this is not a completely fictitious thing, sadly, Kanye has for the second time, at least in a major way, announced that he would be running for president um, in 2020. He also did this back in 2016. Um, and a lot of uh, the kind of general response this kind of go around was just like, not now, <laughs> it's not the time, uh, we're not really feeling it. So, uh, the other facts, the other relevant facts are, for the real world, the which is to say the not funny world, uh, Kanye West has not filed any of the paperwork, he hasn't submitted any of the documents he has to submit to actually run or anything of that nature. So, he is not going to be actually running. But that's not the fun world. So not only have I am I accepting here that he is able to run, um, Kanye wins. Um, Kanye wins a 2020 election, becomes president of the United States. Um, with that, with that context, kind of with that, uh, with that setup, I honestly don't think that there's a way that he wins, and it doesn't break the two-party system. Now, I do also kind of want to clarify, uh, the two-party system sucks. The two-party system is not good. So, Kanye destroying that might be arguably the best thing that a a presidential term from Kanye could do. Um, it breaks down this idea that you have kind of one of two different flavors of choice that are not representative of like what the full options are, but they're kind of the most distilled. They're the most pop, not even the most popular necessarily, but they're the least offensive to the greatest amount of people. And a Kanye presidency would mean that there is enough of a Republican support from the, cause I want to assume that he wins like in a, in a not, he doesn't cheat. Cheating's not, not fun for me for Kanye to win. So Kanye genuinely wins. He wins the popular vote and he wins the electoral college, kind of the lamer way. And he becomes the president and he like soars in. There is now a break in the Republican party for the people who are not any longer the kind of, 
stuffy old men in suits kind of Republicans who are kind of the bread and butter of that party. And now it's, it, maybe they still have some of the shitty views that they've always had because Republicans are going to be Republicans, but now they have to kind of gather behind Kanye if they want to get anything done. And Kanye's not like a predictable figure. He's not a predictable person to work with. The people who enjoy working with Kanye enjoy that because he's kind of so driven and he's so singular in personality. Now, if you want to be cynical, um, we are, I am recording this in 2020, you could say, oh, of course, because that's also what attracted them to Donald Trump. And I disagree with that. I don't think that Donald Trump is nearly as singular as a person or even, even as, um, um, as much of an outlier as a lot of people think. Um, because when you, when you peel away the specifics that, you know, he insults people and all these other things, Donald Trump is just a business person doing the same kind of self-serving, selfish, self-enriching things that business people do. Um, he's a little less smart about it than the average uh, business person would be. He's a little less, you know, shrewd, but he is just another business person. He is just another kind of greedy, self-interested person. Kanye has aspects of that. He is, he's done very well for himself. I think he's a billionaire to some degree, or at least at some point in his worth. But Kanye also creates art. He creates artistic things. So he doesn't have like that kind of, uh, uh, like fully corrupted soul kind of element to him. So He's more, he, he requires a different touch because I think, especially, especially if he wins, uh, he's not a person that you can just kind of establishment away because he's not a person you could establishment away in the recording industry. Um, because it's granted, like he kind of came through with kind of a singular persona, an abrasive persona, if anything, a hostile persona, um, to, to what would be successful. Like he doesn't, he doesn't play nice like you and not like in like, Oh, Kanye is a bad boy or anything like that. But like, he doesn't play nice in a way that you just, for most of the time you should, you know, shake the hands and smile just to kind of let people know that you're going to play ball so that they feel comfortable taking risks on you. He kind of took a lot of risks on himself and there was a select other people in the industry who also kind of went along with him on that. And the Republicans would have to change. And the the bulk of that party just isn't going to. I mean, conservatism is not a it's not an ideology that's, you know, gonna lend itself to change. So there's gonna be parts of that party that are just not going to. That are going to try to be, you know, obstructionist and they're gonna try to stop Kanye West's plan to, I don't know have all album releases be a uh, national holiday or whatever it is. And, and they're gonna, they're gonna kind of be their own cabal. And, but I, I think there's enough, I mean, there's, there's enough, you know, young Republicans essentially who are, who are rich entitled white kids who are raised on Kanye's music that they are going to do whatever they can just to hang out with Kanye more. They're probably gonna at least, you know, pay lip service to bending on some on some ideals that they may, you know, claim to have so that they can hang out and get invited to the parties and things like that. Democrats are also gonna... There, I, I think there's going to be less of a split there, but it, it's... I think the split is completely different uh, with the Democrats, where there is the... There's kind of the irony vote 
in the Democratic Party that is growing, but I think just completely wins when Kanye takes office, where they can just meme somebody into the presidency. And there's a huge voting block within the Democratic Party that would vote for Kanye just because he's another wealthy individual, you know? Uh, and so he kind of, he lives in their circle. Whether or not he likes them, I think is completely irrelevant there. It's, they see Kanye and they're like, oh, you make those rap songs. Those sell really well. That's fun. And they're going to want to play ball with him. But they're also an older generation that's really just trying to play, they're trying to be hip like the young people want without actually making any changes. They're still going to be rich. They're still going to be benefiting from systems that are put in place that Kanye has both benefited from now, but also been uh, held down by in the past. And so that's kind of a complex thing. I think that a Kanye uh, 2020 to 2024 presidency I think the biggest shocker to it, I mean, yeah, it breaks down the two-party system just because there's now not a large enough block inside of the Democratic Party that is homogenous enough for it to be one party anymore, one of the Kanye West presidency. It's the amount of people who are still going to be, de- like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party will still exist, but the other blocks that will be created kind of in reaction to Kanye West on both sides will be enough that you now have at least two other parties and it's not as though they're like a now like the the a broader spectrum of ideas be, are now represented i think there's just a lot there that's just because of kanye west being there um i also think that as as like most people listening here wouldn't just you know be a major player there they're going to be like oh well how does it affect the average citizen i think that with kanye west being president the average citizen not a lot is it's not different enough given the past four years because it's Kanye West is not a revolutionary figure in the uh in the political sense so he's very brash he's very loud and he doesn't have the knowledge of how political systems work he knows business but i think we can pretty safely say that knowing business and being the president are not like two uh those are not skills that exactly mirror one another so he, he could definitely you know attempt to kind of play the business side of his brain that he's been able to spin into a very lucrative business career but i i, I think kind of where i land on it is that kanye west 2020 to 2024 is just kind of a different flavor of what the past four years has been, where it's every single day there's another headline that you roll your eye. Like it's, you know, for the first month, for the first couple months, it's outrageous every single time. Um, it's Kanye has a party at the White House, but he's all in the White House lawn, so it's not like hidden behind the doors and the walls. It's not secret like the previous parties have been. He's like, no, let's do the party for everybody. Obviously not for literally everybody because there's fences and security and stuff, but everyone can see the party. They can see us partying because now it's a whole new White House. Uh, and then like, you know, a couple months go by and then Kanye just doesn't do any job. He doesn't do any president work for like a month because he's just, you know, he's got to rediscover himself just like he does with album cycles. He just, you know, he's got to fly off to this retreat and he's just got to kind of work on an album for a bit. And people may say like, Hey Kanye, aren't you the president? You got to do this. He's like, look, you can't tell me about my creative pursuits and about how I approach my creative endeavors. That's me. That's my singular mission. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. 
and you got to deal with that. And you're like, well, okay, you've been president for four months, and this is now what we're dealing with. I feel like it's just that, and just instead of it being, you know, something bigoted every other month like it is with Trump currently, it's just something that's, like, kind of dumb. Uh, and music-related or music-adjacent. That's kind of the only thing that I think happens there. But upside is there's no more two-party system. That is what I think happens um, in a Kanye 2020 election. And I think he, in 2024, he announces that he's going to run for president again as an album promotion, just like he did this time. Um, but he forgets that he's already president. And so then, cause he's just so used to going like, Oh, I got an album. Cool. What's the most ridiculous thing? Let me go and announce that I'm running for president. He just does it again. And then he just starts promoting an album. People start thinking that he's having like these political rallies and they're just concerts with like no more or less political messaging than an average Kanye West concert has. So he just kind of goes from there. Um, let me see here. One of the other submissions I got was Eric Eric Bogissian's voice. Let me hear this. I'm so sorry for how boring this is going to be. Voice. And let's see if this is anything. This is, so I'm watching currently, just to kind of take you through my process here, I'm watching Eric Bogosian, Bogosian? It may have been misspelled when it was submitted to me. Is him doing a monologue called Medicine. He is playing a doctor. He's got a kind of calming voice. All right, David, I, I'm going to butcher it. Um, this is the first time I've actually heard his voice, especially in this context, but... It's like how Jerry Seinfeld would like would impersonate his father when Jerry Seinfeld was a teenager is where it's like a little more accurate than you expect, but they're still kind of being cheeky about it. So like it couldn't play, it couldn't be generally, it couldn't actually fool you if you were seeing it. But if it was over the phone. If it was over the phone, you could fool it could fool you. Alright. Okay. Blurring vision. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this kind of ramps up. This is pretty... All right, so what I want to say with Eric... Um, Eric Bogosian's voice, in my uh, in my limited exposure to it, and in, in just basing it off of this, just for sheer time, um, it's this very good... It's a thing that I just like in comedy, where it is just a very silly or outlandish thing. It's just kind of played, not even necessarily, like, hyper-realistic, but it's just played 
as it is. And his voice really cements that. I mean, and what I'm seeing here, he's also just kind of standing in a suit. Very stoic. Um, very kind of uh, singular. Again, I'm watching his medicine um, performance, medicine probably monologue. I do not know if it's original or if it is from another script and he's adapting it and performing it. But it's very good. Um, and just kind of the brief bit here that I listened to, his voice is really nice. His voice is disarming because it is, uh, it is exactly kind of what you would expect. Just a random, unentertaining doctor to, to deliver and how you would expect him to deliver it. It's very fun. I don't know if there's much else we really even talk about that. Um, if you like Eric Bogosian's voice, cool. I also like his voice. Um, and I was not instructed, nor shall I, talk about any other aspect of him. His voice is good, and I have already talked about his performance, but that's a little too late to fix that now. Voice is good. I like it. I was also um, requested, why do I think there are there is no movie about Napoleon? To kind of move on to the next thing here. Um, I do want to qualify. I have checked the Wikipedia for this. There are multiple movies made about Napoleon. But why is there no big, big movie made about Napoleon Bonaparte? Um, if you have not recently taken a history class, refresh on Napoleon Bonaparte. He was a political leader in France. He was kind of a colonizer and an imperialist, and he kind of took over a lot of mainland Europe for France until eventually he was bested by a coalition of other European nations who probably, not wanting to be conquered, allied together to then defeat Napoleon. Now, I think that um, there's kind of two things to kind of break this question down into. It's, there are Napoleon movies being made, but why is there not an American Napoleon movie, and why is it not big? And those are kind of the two big things there, because it's there could be, there they could be and there are Napoleon movies that are made, but if they are not American films, and they're not kind of widely uh, publicized, widely budgeted, um, and widely uh, marketed, and things like that, it's understandable for people to basically get the feeling that there are no Napoleon movies. Um, so, I think there is kind of a big thing there where I don't think Napoleon is I think the story of Napoleon Bonaparte, unless you were going to have him as a background character in something else, which he has been, he's in the Night at the Museum movies and things like that, where he's really a punchline. If you're going to have a movie that focuses on Napoleon Bonaparte, some historical biopic, I don't think that Napoleon is the kind of story that the American film industry wants to make or cares about and ditto for the, and this is, again, I'm painting with very broad strokes here. I'm doing a lot of generalizing. But, or, nor is it the type of movie that the American film-going audience typically goes to see that you can really sell as having kind of this gigantic budget. Um, and I want to break that down a bit. So, Napoleon's story, if you were to take kind of the the popcorn understanding of it, the most broadly accepted understanding of Napoleon's story is that he rose to power. It's, he's very short, 
very egotistic and he achieved great success and then greater success and then there's this big battle where he loses and it's then he's like sent off to this island forever he's sent off to this island to die in obscurity for the rest of his days napoleon bonaparte doesn't win in the way that Americans want our great man history figures to win, and he doesn't, and he didn't lose in the way that we want them to lose. Napoleon won by just brute force and kind of pushing through. In fact, I'm gonna actually I'm gonna pull up some things here. But when you take, um, yeah, let me see. Napoleon Bonaparte comes to power in a way that American audiences don't typically like because he didn't earn his stripes through uh, through ingenuity. He didn't earn his place um, through being uh, through being in the right place at the right time in the right way. For American audiences, Napoleon is a general. He's you know leading a command, and then he hears of um, some problems going on back in France in the you know near 1800, and he just hears that there is an opportunity for him to just kind of come in and seize power, and so he just kind of does. Like it's he takes advantage of a power vacuum and being a relatively charismatic figure there, and he. And he just kind of gets to win there because he has enough people. There's not enough pushback. There's not enough of a unified resistance to him becoming or to him getting into power that he just kind of does. So it's, that's not a, that's not a satisfying rags to riches tale because that moment is not rags to riches. That moment is not kind of what people, what gets people excited to kind of see someone get into power. It's also not like skeevy enough it's not slimy enough for me to be excited about him just doing that to then be excited to see how it falls out from underneath him um it's because it's just kind of like yeah no that's what i would expect to happen someone who wants to be in power just kind of like sees it happening and then he just kind of goes for it but i don't it's sure i want him to be taken down a peg but it's not as though he like beat up a whole bunch of puppies to get there he doesn't have to do enough evil on his rise to the top that his ultimate fall is very satisfying that's kind of the double-edged sword there um then let's get to and then like he just kind of leads and he leads and he works with people that american audiences like at least like literally right now we will see how much longer thomas jefferson gets a good rap historically speaking but but he sells a lot of stuff over to the united states with the louisiana purchase he then starts to spread an empire but but it does like he starts to spread an empire but even that part it's uh, a 
people who have listened to me on podcasts or just know me personally. I'm not not a very pro-imperial type person. But Napoleon's imperial conquest is not even as sympathetic as you would need it to be for a movie. Because he, the places he's conquering... It's Europe. It's Western Europe that he's predominantly conquering. Obviously, it's if you want to do a deep dive into Napoleon, there's a lot of bad shit that he's doing. But I'm talking about kind of what what one you're going to be able to accomplish in a single film because you're just not going to get a cinematic universe of, of Napoleon movies. And what is going to be palatable to an audience who is going to go see a film, who's going to go see a movie. And so when you're, when you're hitting kind of only like the big bullet points with him, he's conquering Western Europe and just it's, those are people with standing militias of roughly equivalent technological advancement and training for the most part that he's just kind of beating. And I'm not excited there. Like I'm not, I'm not really invested because it's, I'm like, Oh, do I need to really feel super bad for Spain or for Italy here? Because I just kind of don't, or do I need to feel really bad for 1800s Britain? Because again, for an American audience, we just fought them in the revolution. I'm not exactly sympathetic to any of the people that Napoleon is kind of taking over. If anything, you again would have this thing where from the American point of view, given the historical backdrop that Napoleon existed in, he's almost the good guy from where we were at that point in time. He's selling us land that we want at a rate that we can afford and was questionably legal and is actually not even his land to begin with, but he's doing things that help America at that time. He's beating on people that we also didn't particularly like or care for. America's first and like initial ally was the French to kind of really simplify it. So he's somebody that we like, but again, it's his rise to power is not impressive or emblematic of anything that we're really proud of. And then you have the people that he's conquering are not so sympathetic to an American audience that they care about their plight in the broadest sense of things. So we have a, we have a protagonist that we don't care about. And then we, if we want to view them as like an anti-hero, we don't care about the people that they're hurting particularly much. And so then you go like, okay, well then let's then focus on his downfall. Maybe like you started and he's already, you know, this, petulant short emperor of France and the you know rest of Europe is united against him they don't he's not enough of a warrior to be on the front lines he's a general he's making commands they don't kill him he doesn't die at the battle they have a big dramatic battle where he just you know makes several back-to-back-to-back dumb decisions at the Battle of Waterloo, which, again, people already know. So there's very little for them to learn about because Waterloo, one, it's just such a it's such a singular type of name for a place that people who even lack a deep understanding of it know that Napoleon went there and that he fucked up. And he didn't, like, fuck up and lose in an interesting way. He just didn't strategize well enough to beat the people who were going to beat him. And we don't typically like to watch sports movies where a... In a, or an NBA team plays a high school team and then the high school team loses. Like, we understand that people who strategize better and execute better on plans succeed. And so then you have your anti-hero who loses not... He doesn't... He Like, you could argue he loses due to pride. He didn't think he had to strategize well. But then it's like, yeah, dude, you always have to strategize well. That's also not interesting. So, again, to 
underscore my point for like the 50th time. It's we have someone who we don't sympathize with, we don't think is cool. Then Napoleon is attacking people who we also don't really sympathize with. And then he loses in a way that we even furthermore don't sympathize with. So it is kind of a three strikes issue with Napoleon. Now, as a fun exercise... Let's see. Let's say I want to try to make a Napoleon movie work. I want to try to make it work for an American audience. Well, I think what you do is it's so difficult because I specifically did not want to do a ton of research because normally I'd have like big speaking points here, but I would I would do it. It's you would have to get a very charismatic actor. And you would have them play Napoleon, and it would be very kind of, it would, it, you want to you wanna get kind of people slack-jawed going in out of morbid, morbid curiosity. And the most people, the things they know about Napoleon Bonaparte is that he's egotistical and that he's short. And again, this is going to be a bit of a meme, but again, I want to sell this movie. I want this movie to happen. So let's say that we cast Danny DeVito as Napoleon Bonaparte. He physically fits the bill. He's got meme energy that's going to motivate audiences to see it so that I can, I can, whenever I'm trying to budget this movie, I can expect it to get a pretty decent return because just sheer morbid curiosity of this funnier die sketch turned into feature length film where it is Danny DeVito playing Napoleon Bonaparte is going to put some butts in seats. So we have, we have Danny DeVito, but it's Danny DeVito now modern day in 2020 is very kind of colored in the public idea and the public conscious because of his performances on it's always sunny and i don't want to put him there i want to put danny devito back into the space that uh kind of i was introduced to danny devito in and that's in this kind of late 90s early 2000s when you see him in matilda where he plays this kind of uh for people who haven't seen matilda it's about a young girl with latent telekinetic powers overcoming kind of a at times kind of maliciously indifferent family life um and just kind of a world that is either hostile to her um or just again kind of maliciously indifferent danny devito plays a uh, unscrupulous car salesman and father to this telekinetic girl who is only concerned with making his buck and then going back home and then watching a TV show where people get oiled up and try to grab money out of a tube. Like, he's he's kind of like this caricature of this sleazebag, dirtbag guy. Now, at the end of the film, his family... Or, the, the Matilda's family, at the end of the movie, after... I have not seen Matilda in so long, but after, after kind of the main villain, who is the principal, who's like actively antagonistic, everyone else is just kind of bad. It's kind of like an unfun backdrop, but the principal's actively antagonistic to her, but they, they kind of reunite. They have, um, this teacher of hers who is kind of this light in Matilda's life is now kind of more involved in the family. And you get this sense that he now, by the end of the movie, it's not really given a good motivation for it, but he now kind of has a bit of an arc, a bit of development, where he now kind of cares a bit more about his playing an active role in his daughter's life instead of his daughter just being a nuisance and being around to him. So, I want to take that Danny DeVito, where it's he can play up this kind of near-cartoonish level of, of just kind of, not villainy, but just kind of yuck 
he can play that up because what I want is I want I want there to be this you know uh, Christopher Nolan uh, Dunkirk level of like historically accurate wartime shots as we're in you know late colonial era Western Europe. And he's in a campaign in Egypt. And then it's you like you see, you know, we we come up and there's just like this soldier who's running through the dunes of Egypt and you know, this like this French like cotton wool coat and like this dumb hat as he's running like this envelope up and he gets to the general's tent, uh into the commander's tent, and he passes word on to Danny DeVito. We played it, and Danny DeVito is playing it straight. Danny DeVito is really using all of his acting chops and he's just and he's kind of making these really shrewd calculated political moves and it's it's engaging because when you're watching it and there's always a little bit of you that's laughing because it's it's Danny DeVito in a Napoleon movie that the movie is played completely straight Danny DeVito is not having to work for the comedic beats here he's gonna find them because like as much as people like to say that oh Danny DeVito's funny as Frank Reynolds because he gets lubed up and naked and talks about shooting ridiculous stuff Danny DeVito does good and it's always sunny and as Frank Reynolds because Danny DeVito is a damned professional comedian who has been doing this for decades and he's a very talented performer so Danny DeVito knows the exact moments to play up a little bit like he knows the the bits to be dramatic in order to get the biggest laughs if that's what the scene is being called for and he's able to play somebody that the american public recognizes as a total dirtbag as a total person who we are not rooting for but is endearing to like no one uh, as an example no one watches it's always sunny in good faith and wants Frank Reynolds to fail or go to jail and be done because we enjoy reveling in what Frank Reynolds does. He is a, he is a kind of, he is, he's an evil because the characters in that show are kind of on an, are on an ever inclining ramp to becoming worse and worse people. But it is exhibitionist in a way that we can kind of revel in because it's just a, just removed enough while also still remaining grounded. He's not, you know, evil in the sense that he's building like a whole carnival ride of torture. He's doing things that somebody in Frank Reynolds' position would do in the in the world that we all live in, but he's heightened a bit. And I feel like he would also bring that to Napoleon because you would again you would cast all around him Everyone is taking the things he says very seriously. People treat him as a genuine threat. But just you as the audience in the back of your mind are just constantly going, that is Danny DeVito in a in a, in a vest at the start of it. He's in a vest and a war coat and all these kinds of things. Then, then you have his kind of rise and his, uh, his goals of empire. Again, it's just... It's neat and it's refreshing to see this kind of, uh, this just not physically intimidating at all figure kind of undercut all these serious things. I want to kind of play into, I've touched on, I've touched on his literal roles in It's Always Sunny, but I also want to uh, touch on people who are familiar with drunk history, where it's these, the historical bits are always told as straight as they possibly can, and kind of the comedy comes into them whenever the drunk historian says something just kind of as like a shorthand, like, hey, I heard you've been talking shit, we got a duel, or they slur a word or two, and the whole movie has that kind of vibe to it, where it's, there are just things that, like, there's just 
comedy bits that can come out of these serious moments and just like the camera lingering on a shot for too long. If you linger on, uh, if you linger on Danny DeVito as Napoleon, you, let's say we take the moment whenever he, he crowns himself as emperor of France. And we have these paintings of him that are just like, he's in these, he's in just like these like just white tights he's wearing just pounds and pounds of robes and so like you even have the the shot that pans up to just the the french kind of power structure there you know kneeling to him looking up at him and then again it's just the camera frames up and it's just like it's you forget for a second what movie you're watching because it's shot again like we have like this very serious very straight played movie and then it pans up and then just in a golden like leaf crown and like just pounds of jewelry is just Danny DeVito just kind of just sitting there and existing and that is just a hysterically funny image and so it allows itself to be accurate it doesn't have to be like a direct slapstick comedy movie it's the juxtaposition of who we have kind of demonstrating Napoleon Bonaparte is just naturally funny it is a constant visual gag that the that the movie can kind of dip in and out of at its will and it's we can dip out of it because you could say like oh it's i'm never going to be able to forget that i'm watching frank reynolds wage war on prussia but it's danny devito has the acting chops to sell that believably when he's written to play a straight character when he's not written to be frank reynolds if you go back through his filmography he can play a straight sympathetic character with real goals with real motivations with realistic or at least with understandable points of view and then the movie can really just ratchet up whenever it's best for timing whenever it's best for like when is the best moment to let this laugh happen you play it there and then it's you have you now are able to have waterloo happen and it's kind of this you pull you finally pull the curtain back on the whole movie because it's napoleon is a lot of bluster he's a lot of ego he's a lot of not completely unearned but it's not accurate the level of self-confidence that he has and you just have him just completely shit the bed at the battle of waterloo you bring in like other prestige actors here or or even better, what would be truly good is you bring in other comics, you bring in other comedians who are also playing straight, who just, again, that's just, it's a bit of stunt casting there, but it kind of lets the audience clue into the fact that we are really just kind of going for it in this final battle. And you just have kind of all of the artifice drop away, and the end of it gets to be this just ludicrous payoff, where now the movie is letting you laugh the entire time. It's really digging into, we get the, we finally get the visual payoff of of Danny DeVito on the giant stallion it's reeling back we get to see that there's like the golden light behind it we see you know the uh we finally see like the final or the, we finally get to see the French stereotype soldier that the audience has been wanting to see the whole time it's just finally the whole curtain is let back on it and then when he loses, we get to see Napoleon throw a full-on tantrum, and then he gets sent to live on an island forever. I feel like that, if we're going to get this movie to work and get it to be big, I feel like that kind of, uh, that broad strokes plot there is the movie you could get that you're going to be able to make the argument to a Hollywood executive is going to sell the tickets, it's going to recoup its budget, it's going to play to a 
to an audience because it's not only are people going to make a point to go like, did you hear that Danny DeVito is playing Napoleon Bonaparte? If it was safe to do so, we are going to go to theaters. We're going to see that movie. And if not, I am going to stream that movie. I'm going to watch it. And it's also, it's going to be talked about online to kind of raise its profile. I think that kind of that's the full answer there is that's how... That's how it gets made so that people are, one, aware of it and that people know that, oh, there is a Napoleon Bonaparte movie. Did you know that it's got Danny DeVito in it? For real. It seriously has Danny DeVito in it. And I feel like that's kind of that's kind of the success that you'll find with it there. Ba-ba-bum. Okay, those are, the, those are the major submissions that I got in um, that I kind of wanted to go over. Um, and it looks like here, I may end up whittling some of this down. I may not. You may end up just having this on the back, uh, having this on in the background and listening to me talk, which, hey, that's also nice. I'm glad that I was able to fill in some background noise for you. But I wanted to, um, kind of with the end of this episode here, this is the first time that I have done a podcast, um, ever completely on my own. Um, and I kind of want to go over, for anyone who's curious, I feel like if you're listening to this episode, this is maybe something that will either interest you directly, and that it's literally information that is interesting to you, or it might be, it might be useful to you in some way. That's, that's kind of, that's the headspace I'm operating on. So, I want to talk about, um, with my last 20 minutes here, I just want to talk about uh, my creative process. So, and kind of how this show plays into it. Um, so, Drew Will Do It, this show, is kind of nonsense as a podcast idea. Um, a lot of people that I know listen to podcasts are interested or have like mentioned, like, oh, they'll come up to me and like tell me about this podcast that they like, what it's about when they listen to it, all these kind of things. Um, and I don't listen to many podcasts. Um, in fact, the kind of one, the one that I started listening to, they got me to start kind of making them. I even have stopped listening to it. Um, but I think I'm getting ahead of myself there a bit. Um, Drew will do it, um, for people who are either starting with this episode for some reason, or um, who have or who have listened to all of them and are struggling to make sense of it um, is a podcast where every episode of it is a unique show. It is a completely different show, episode to episode. The only thing that is a common element between all of them is that they're all hosted in the same RSS feed, and that I co-host or in this case host each one. Now, as just something to do. That's completely fine. As a, anything, any creative pursuit, I think, is completely fine to do on its own merit. It doesn't have to justify itself or anything else. In the world of creating a podcast, if you want people to hear it, and this might get a little inside baseball, but podcasts that do well, that are kind of in the big umbrella genres, are um, the, the two that a lot of people will point to are like true crime podcasts or what are called like D&D real play podcasts, or they are a comedy podcast or something to that effect. Now, if you're going to create a podcast, I, I created this show, I think this episode will be the fourth week 
in a row that it's been running. So it's now been running for a full month. Congratulations to me um, for putting that up. And thank you all to everyone who has submitted and been on the show um, for doing that. But um, it's also the fourth different episode that this show is run. The fourth different show format, the fourth different structure, the fourth different hosting combination. And if you're going to create a podcast and you want it to do well, you want it to be heard by people... You can put it into an established genre, and people who are looking for podcasts in that style will then find it. As an example, if you want to talk about true crime, you want to talk about crimes and stuff, murders and robberies and whatnot, you can make a podcast that's in that genre, and people who are interested in hearing about that will listen to it. You then can you then have them as a hook because they kind of come into your show knowing a bit about what it's going to be. And as a performer, I think it's important to not necessarily cater to a fault to audience expectation, but to know what your audience expects. If you do magic and your audience is expecting sandwiches, you're not going to have a satisfied audience most of the time. That's a silly example, but that's kind of illustrative of the point. You, as a performer... As an entertainer, you kind of are bringing to your audience a little bit of what they're expecting. Sometimes your subversion of that is what they're wanting out of it, but to subvert accurately, you also need to know what that is. Um, that same kind of thing goes for if you're doing a real play podcast. A lot of people are into D&D. A lot of people like to listen to people play D&D. They like those stories. They will find your podcast if it's in those genres because the algorithms the platforms that put that host podcasts want to keep people listening to more and more podcasts so they go hey do you like this broad genre of thing we're going to give you as much of that as we think you'll listen to so that you can find it broader than that if you have a persona if you are a celebrity or if you're a known entertainer a lot of people will come to you even if you're doing something that has no genre description that fits it or that's a complete departure the nature of people being fans of someone and someone's body of work is such that they will follow you at least out of some curiosity to whatever it is that you do. Joe Rogan had a complete career as a comedian before he started his podcast and then he was able to pull that audience to his podcast to start it and then he was able to take that podcast in the direction that he's taken it in to the massive massive audience that he's been able to do. I don't necessarily like Joe Rogan, but you can't argue with the fact that he's very successful. Ditto for Mark Maron. Mark Maron has had the president of the United States on his podcast, and he was able to spend his, you know, lifelong career in comedy and kind of in being this storyteller into a into an interview show, which is different. Like if you're a fan of Mark Maron, like I was, or like I am, and you like his stand-up material, you go like, Oh, he's just doing interviews. I don't, that's not the same thing. So they're not, I'm not coming to it because it's the same that I've already gotten. Like I do whenever there's a new Mark Maron, you know, stand-up special that I gravitate to, but people go to it because they like Mark Maron. They like the person, his celebrity attracts them to the projects that he does. Um, Danny DeVito, my Napoleon example would be an example of that. I, to circle it back around to me, like, I don't have that in a broad sense. I have friends and I have people who locally have seen me perform, and that carries a lot of the creative projects that I do, where people will come see me perform either out of, you know, they're a friend of mine and I have supportive friends, I've cultivated a supportive friend group, or people who have met me in social situations, have thought I was entertaining, and that will at least get them to check something out. 
And so that's enough to get something started, at least at kind of the level I'm operating at. But a show like Drew Will Do It doesn't lend itself to getting any bigger than that, at least not like easily. Because let's say, um, so in the as of the time of this recording, this show has put up three episodes. One of them was a casual discussion about music and how people discover music, how people share music, what inspires people to listen to certain songs, etc. The second episode was a comedy improv two-person scene where um, my friend Kevin and I played as, we oscillated playing as producers and we pitched general ideas to one another and then kind of ratcheted up the challenge of the pitch by giving each other curveballs. Now already we have two completely different things. We have a music podcast that's not a review podcast or it's not a it's we're not interviewing musicians. We're two regular people listening to music and talking. And then the second episode is a comedy podcast that is a completely fabricated pitch show with this kind of artifice of a producer's meeting of a pitch meeting on top of it the third episode um was myself and my friend kayla and we were reading through craigslist misconnections and then evaluating the content of the misconnections posts for any romantic viability that the people therein might have that is now a complete third completely different show you could argue that it has some similarities with the second one in that it's kind of improvisational little comedic but it also is kind of like this um dear abby letter type thing where we are presuming to know what makes any couple or any romantic pair work at all or what what qualifies as being compatible we're kind of presuming having that authority and then we're auditing something fundamentally silly the main point i bring up there is the only thing that would make this type of show work is if you were interested in, or at least that, that makes it work in kind of the traditional sense, is that is if I had like a fan base that I was able to pull to it. Because it's it's pulling in too many different directions for like algorithms to make it do well. But I also, at the same time, like I'm aware of that and I still do the show. So then kind of what gives? I approach creative endeavors, at least, and a lot of this is going to be rose-tinted, looking at a rose-tinted mirror, I guess, but it's, I approach performance and, and the entertainment that I like to do and the creative pursuits that I like to do as invitational, I think of, in a way. I think that uh, my opinion on entertainment is I... While I like a broad variety of different approaches and different styles to comedy, the type that always makes me feel the best to do, and it makes me, like, whenever I do it well, I feel like I've done good by my audience, is is entertainment is comedy is performance that is invitational. I don't want the audience to feel that, like, at my show, they have to just kind of sit and let me get my creativity out, and then that's all that they can get, then I'm going to go home, and then now they've gotten to enjoy it, and now they have to go home. I don't like it to be that kind of standoffish or that, that separational. I like to, I do a lot of, uh, for people, I guess, who don't know me, who have found this, I do, uh, probably just by sheer volume, I do the most improvisational comedy, which is whose line is it anyway? Any improviser who tells you that it's not it's something else as a starting point, has got something to prove, in my opinion. Um, but it's... I improv, Improvisation as an art form, as a performance form, is something where I, I view it as a form that is like structurally built 
to satisfy an audience. And uh, and what I mean by that is, if you're doing improv in any way correctly, you are constantly polling the audience for what they want to see and then giving that to them. Now, you as an individual performer are going to flavor that and you're going to leave your fingerprints on that in certain ways. And the best performers are doing that in a way that the audience doesn't know that they want, but that they really came there to see. But in an improv performance, if an audience wants, if an audience came to see any Shakespeare play, but what they wanted to see is something in space, the Shakespeare performers, that cast can do nothing for them. They can do nothing but what they rehearsed because they rehearsed it, presuming that one, they would get fulfillment out of performing it. And two, the audience would want to see it. Now, by and large, the people who are going to come see a play, especially something, you know, well-known, are going to come to see it because they expected that they, that they wanted to see that. But what if it's the first time you've ever seen it? You've ever seen that play, that movie, what have you, and halfway through you wanted something different to happen. And anything scripted, um, ditto for, you know, a, a band's live performance where they're playing songs that they've recorded and rehearsed and practiced and kind of synchronized with one another... You kind of just have to let that play out, and it's whether or not that appeals to you in the moment is kind of, it's up to you, the individual. The the uh, the performers can play into the general energy, but there's always that, how are they interpreting your energy, the actors probably filtering that through any number of things. With improvisation, and again, in my opinion, I start off by asking you, the audience, what type of show you want to see. You know, I'm asking you, like, what location you want, what... Uh, what job, what career do I have? And then I'm kind of doing that and I'm playing live. Like it's, I'm playing to your responses in addition to you starting off the submission that I asked you for, because I can kind of gauge moment to moment in that, Hey, is this playing well to that audience? Are they liking what I'm doing here? Are, am I, I'm trying to be funny, but are they laughing to it? And then I can adjust on the fly. I have no script. I have no, I have no uh, set, I have no, I don't have any restrictions truly into kind of what I can do there. And what that does, and, and what that does from what I, from how I see it, is that it invites you as the audience member to have a, it's still defined, um, very rarely, very rarely are shows where like the entire audience is on stage also performing, but it invites you as the audience to take a more active role in you being entertained. It takes, admittedly, some of the work off of me, the improviser, the performer, to have you come in front of me, having, you know, you've dedicated your time, you've driven all the way here, you've paid the tickets, you've paid for concessions, whatnot, you're in front of me here. It allows me to, to ensure by giving you some of the power, I don't have full control anymore over what's going to happen on the stage or what's going to happen tonight at the show. But by giving you some of that power, I'm also inviting you into the creative process in a way. I'm kind of inviting you to come up with me on stage and create with me a bit. Even if you're not physically up here, your idea is up here with me. And then I'm kind of playing with that. And I'm giving that back to the audience in a way that hopefully you reciprocate. And if you reciprocate it well, I'm going to hear you respond, laugh, gasp, what have you. And then that's going to create this feedback loop where we're kind of playing with one another. Drew will do it as the show is that as well. Um, podcasting for me, I've been doing this since 2017. Um, 
I started with a show called Dan Drew Reviews the Classics, where me and a longtime improv and improv uh, partner of mine and longer time friend of mine, uh, Daniel, um, we reviewed classic films. Um, and that was just, uh, at the time I was feeling stagnant in my creative pursuits. I felt like I was no longer progressing and I was no longer performing as a result of that. I wanted something to, to do, but it's at that time I was no longer in the improv troupe where I'd kind of cut my teeth on it. There weren't any other improv troops that were feasible due to like their physical distance or the cost of doing them. I needed something that I could do that I could just kind of self-start. And the podcast was that. I was able to um, kind of do Googling, figure out, okay, what do I do with the podcast? How do I create it? How do I record it? Where do I host it? Things like that. And I was able to kind of start this creative thing that is um, fun for me to do. It's creatively fulfilling. It keeps my brain working on a professional level. It, um, it, it, it is a body of work of mine that I can point people to um, in a professional sense if I need to be able to say like, hey, have you heard of me? Have you seen me perform? Here is something that I've done. Uh, and it's it's something that's just, it's creatively uplifting to do, to just do something creative. And a lot of people, because I mean, I was in this position, especially with as now podcasts have gotten more and more popular have ideas for podcasts, they listen to podcasts, or they just are like, that would be kind of fun to do, but they don't have the, there's always something that's stopping a lot of people. Like it's in an, to bring it back to like my improv performer mindset, it's the thing that a lot of people that go to improv shows would like to be on stage. A lot of people that go see actors, they go see plays, they go see movies would want to act. And there's, there's just, there just are barriers to just going and doing that. Not everyone, unfortunately, not everyone who wants to perform, who has kind of a creative voice in them, gets the opportunity to really show that. And I think that our arts are lesser for that, not having everyone in the room. We don't get to have everyone's creative input there due to any number of factors it could just be lack of confidence they just can't get in front of a crowd it could just be they aren't able to pull all of their creative ideas into you know one thing to then show that to an audience um they could be extremely creative but their create but their work is so personal that it's not something that necessarily would appeal to an audience but it still has creative merit it's still to a to the right audience if you could sculpt it would value that infinitely or just i mean even things that are less kind of nebulous than that just some people don't have the free time on a friday night to be able to you know or have the free time at nights to go to rehearse a show for free for like two months, six weeks to two months at a time, and then also take off an entire weekend to perform it. A lot of people don't have the material luxury of forget the money to drive yourself to and from rehearsal and buy costumes if that's, if that's a thing you have to do. A lot of people lack the luxury of time. And I think it's the job of people who are able to be in a position of doing creative things um who are who are who have been gifted with 
the privilege of being able to perform for anybody. Whether that, you know, if it's just for yourself or if it is for an entire crowd of people, if it's for crowds of people repeatedly, I think that we are... Um, we 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 have we have responsibilities i think to do right by our fellow creative people the people you work with i feel like you have a duty to do right by your audience um and i feel like you have a you have a duty to do right to the to the art that you're doing to the craft that you're doing and i want to break those down and kind of also then direct how they how they relate to this podcast and other things that i do I feel like it's, you have a right, you have a duty, I think I started with, to do right by your fellow performers. And that's more, you know, that to an extent is a selfish thing, because if everybody has that mindset, then that elevates the performance as a whole. That leads to you being more self-satisfied, because anytime you had a weakness or you had something that, like, you don't quite excel at as much as someone else, you have someone who there who has your back, and then you're able to do that for someone else. We all have unique past experiences which lead us to having unique skill sets that we've based on either just kind of the environment we were raised in creatively or the environment that we uh that we that we were raised in creatively or the environment that we kind of cultivated while being creative you know both things there i think are kind of equal in that way in that we're, we're putting on that good show. I kind of lost my thought for a bit there. But you have a right to do right by them because it's everyone to some extent with their creative performance, with, the, with their creative passions there, is trying to show the best thing they can in that moment. And being there for your performers is being there for yourself in a way. And it's ensuring that that gets to be true for everybody. Doing right by your audience, um, people uh, in chronological order, because there's I have no control once I put everything out, if people listen to it at all, or in what order they listen to it in, or listen to it. Um, you have a duty to do right by your audience, in my opinion. And there's a bit of hesitance on that for some performers, for some people, because they believe that it's, I should be able to create and do whatever I want to do, and I don't care if people like it, or if it's what other people want to make. And you don't want to be constricted by expectations of your audience of just the idea that people are going to see and judge your work and and to an extent um and i don't i don't want to necessarily couch that and say like oh that's a little true but it's you should be able to and you should feel empowered to create whatever your creative voice is telling you to make but at the same time if you are doing a pure creation thing, like currently, I don't have to release this podcast episode. If it just felt good to me to just kind of talk about my creative process out loud for me, and I didn't want to hear people judge on it, I didn't want to hear people comment on it, I didn't want to put it out there, anything like that, I can just keep this audio for me, listen to it in the future if I wanted to, or just delete it outright and just kind of have said it just for me. I don't have to... I don't have to involve anyone else if I don't truly want to for what I want to create. That's not identical for all modes of creation, but it is at least in kind of my experience. But I like to perform in front of an audience. I take pride in the work that I do in the in the creative stuff that I do. So I like to let people see it. I like to let people kind of see the fruits of the work that I do. But now what have I done? I have now asked people for their time. And, you know, 
coming to where I'm going to perform to see me do it. A lot of times I'm asking them for money, with it being the admission of ticket prices for the venues in which I perform. I'm asking them, you know, for the additional money of... Uh, I'm asking them in an improv space to both give me suggestions for what I need for my show to work, but also to be quiet when I need them to be quiet so that I can perform. I'm I'm asking something of them. And it's not so cheap, quote unquote, to say that it's just transactional. I need something from them. They want something from me. We agree to that. But I, I owe them to, and again, this is kind of my stance on it. But I owe them to, even if they, um, even if I bust them all to the venue I'm performing at, even if there's no admission price, there's no ticketing system, they came here completely for free, I am asking somebody for their time. They, they could be anywhere in the world at the time that they come to see me perform, or at the time that they listen to a podcast that I do, or the time that they read a joke I typed and then put on Twitter, whatever it may be, and... You never know why someone is coming to be entertained. No, you never know why someone's coming to... You do not know why, with 100% accuracy, people are trying to consume, quote-unquote, art. Why they go to an art gallery, why they go to a movie, why they go to a stand-up show, why they go to an improv show, why they go to a concert. You can always have ideas, but you're not going to be 100% accurate for 100% of people. Because it's some people will go to a concert and they just want to hear the top 40 hits. A lot of people go to that exact same concert and they want to hear the really deep cuts that nobody else knows. So you can't, you can't, in my opinion, kind of frame it around giving everybody their exact, like, what is going to be perfect for everyone in the crowd. That's the, that's the ideal. That's what you want to do. Because you want everyone to leave over the moon satisfied with having seen your performance or with having seen your art gallery or whatever it is. But you aren't going to be able to do, to have the knowledge of what everyone is there for. And a lot of times they will go there not knowing what they're there, what they are there for. But what you can do is if you are always ensuring that you're respectful of your audience's time, if you... Not, not even like, you may choose to do this explicitly and kind of tell them that you appreciate that. A lot of audiences will enjoy that. But as long as, in my opinion, as long as you approach it with this idea of even if nothing else, these people could have been anywhere for the next, in my case, you know, hour and a half, two hours. And they made the decision to spend that time here with me. I'm going to respect that. I'm going to respect that they, at the bare minimum, chose to do that. Because they didn't have to. And I mean, anyone who's tried to make a career in the creative fields will tell you a lot of people don't. Um, and, uh, and definitely when you're, you know, getting started. And so uh, that's really what I mean by do right by your audience. It's don't, there's people who are, who like as performers who come off, in my opinion, um, as entitled to an audience and I don't think that anyone is I don't think that as a performer as a creative person you are by nature of being someone who's doing something creative entitled to other people's free time on mass like that in the grand scheme of things you could say that culture needs art and I'm providing that art therefore I should be valued and in like a cosmic sense sure but in a person-to-person sense, if you're going to ask somebody for two hours of their undivided attention, I think that you owe it to them to make it worth their while. I like to think that I try to do that by 
inviting them to perform with me in a varying capacity based on audience. And a lot of that is I can ensure through that that, you know, I'm not going to get everyone to speak up and kind of agree in a timely fashion on the exact perfect show for everybody there. But I'm going to I'm going to give them a seat in the room so that I'm not deciding for them what they got to see. I'm asking them. I'm listening. I'm in conversation. I like to riff with my audiences a bit. Because for them, I like I like for them to be involved in it. And in my experience and kind of in my history, where I found that is... Or I, I found that what that does is it, it makes them succeed with me and it makes them sympathetic to when I fail. Um, I'm not going to be perfect on stage. I'm not going to always say wall-to-wall gut-buster jokes or anything like that. But... I'm letting the audience in on my process as much as I can because I want them to one it's I want them whenever whenever they see me kind of hit you know a really funny turn of phrase or a funny character I want them to feel that I'm only and I want them to feel and I want this to be accurate that I'm only doing that thing based on at the seed of it their submission if they hadn't come to my show and said that thing when i asked for a suggestion i would not have performed that character in that way and said those things so that it's if they had come to the show and i was not there there is no show that they got to see if i had gone to do a show and they had not come there my show is lesser it is accurate and as honest as i think i can be in the relationship of both in the way that the audience needs a needs a performer in order to be entertained. I, as a performer, I need an audience to do the entertaining. Otherwise, I'm sitting alone in my room talking to a microphone. And the final thing, if I remember what I said correctly, because this is off the cuff, I said I also want to make sure that I'm doing right by my craft. I don't want anything that I do to be exclusionary. I do improv, and as a logistical thing, you just can't have thousands of people on stage in any improv show that I've seen. I could just not be enough of a visionary. But I don't want people to come see me perform and then leave thinking that they can, they could never do what I do. Because when I was younger, I didn't know that I could do what I did, or what I have done, what I will do in the future. Because I had not done it. I hadn't had the opportunity to do it. And I want to... I want to impart on people that it's... With your art... You want to look at... Unless, like... If you in your creative endeavors and your creative pursuits have only harmed you personally, maybe you have a pretty good case for not wanting to share that or have other people share in that with you. Perfectly valid if that is the case. But for the majority of creative people and for artists that I know, they have found substantial and very uh, very intimate and personal validation and fulfillment through the art that they do whatever it is you know i've met uh i've met musicians singers other improv actors traditional scripted actors podcasters people who do woodworking whatever it is and if you found fulfillment and happiness in what you do and what you are doing it is inevitable that a lot of other people would as well and the only reason that you were able to be kind of where you are is due to the opportunities that you were presented with, in my opinion. Um, no one is born an actor 
with all the talents or anything like that. In fact, I actually take a lot of issue with the word talent personally. Uh, I I fancy myself a pretty decent improv performer. I don't like this kind of faux humility or anything like that. I have been doing improv to some extent, to some level, between uh, since 2009. As of the time I'm recording this, it is now 2020. I have performed for probably at this point, you know, cumulatively thousands and thousands of people um, in Atlanta and smaller towns in Noonan, where I'm from. Um, I'm not, you know, a household name, obviously. Um, and then I have also performed podcasts, um, one of which I'm proud to say as, I don't know how many of these are real, but you know, like it has like 7,000 listens in total, which is not, uh, a ton by any metric really, but it felt good to me to do. And if it felt good for me to be able to do that, I wouldn't want anyone else to buy, not, not for lack of want, not be able to experience that if that's something that they desired. And that's, again, I to kind of couch it back in that um, do right by your audience, It's there's an extent to which it's not everyone, even if they were to get the opportunity to perform, not everyone is going to actually like it. But everyone needs to have, I think, kind of a taste of that opportunity in order to know that for sure. And um, as, a, as a kind of completely separate but relevant example i think um when i was in middle school and high school i wanted nothing more than to be a video game designer i was i played a lot of video games all the time i was playing um if i'm just going to start rattling stuff off i was playing sly cooper and ratchet and clank and jack and daxter and the dragon ball z budokai games i rented my street and klonoa 2 a lot for the ps2 i played all the kingdom hearts if i didn't mention that already the xbox 360 came out and i was playing mass effect a lot I was playing, I eventually played the Halo games, didn't much care for them, I played Half-Life, I was playing these games, these creative worlds, and I wanted to make those for other people, and then I was very fortunate in that my high school that I went to had this program where I could uh, take college-level classes while still being in high school, um, I didn't have, like, a, uh, uh, tuition or anything like that to pay because it was a partnership with like this technical school where I could uh, for like part of my day instead of like as an elective class I was able to take a game development class I'm like oh this is amazing you know I did write I made sure I had all the prerequisites and I got to take a game development class where we did such cool things like one day we just played Starcraft on a land with all the students and the teacher we watched this big epic documentary about the history of Final Fantasy um, and then we like got to code our own game and I learned that coding is boring as shit and I've never hated anything more in my entire life and that was a years and years long passion of mine that I was so sure I wanted to do and I got the opportunity to actually try at it and I hated it I hated it so much it was the most tedious boring nonsense that I've ever gone through and you know and, and in a way I'm hyper fortunate like it's I, I guess I don't, uh, I, you could very easily go through that exact same order and list of experiences and come away with that. Like, well, my dream is now crushed. I'm now aimless. What do I do? I came out of that going like, thank God I learned that before I went to college for that before I was, you know, in student loan debt and then discovered once I was, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in debt that I no longer was passionate or cared about what it is that I wanted to do. And then I have to decide, do I now, do I just stick with it because I'm so invested and it would now be financially irresponsible to go back on it now. So now I'm kind of resent, resenting this thing that used to be a passion of mine. Or do I give up? And then I have to later in life then kind of reorient myself with what I want to do. 
But because I had the opportunity to kind of get exposed to that, I was able to learn that it just wasn't for me. And I still have a lot of respect for that field. I still am very involved in that passion of mine. But I now have a accurate view of it. And I view that with improv performance to an extent where it's it's even the audience member who doesn't have the opportunity to like go audition for an improv class or go audition for an improv troupe or take improv classes or like me be fortunate enough to be in improv troops and do improv and or do or act or do whatever. If you're at my show and I can involve you in my performance a bit, you can get a little bit of a taste for it and see and literally taste test that for yourself. Does that feel good? Does saying something and the audience having a reaction to it, does that feel good to you? Is that something you want to pursue and want to do more of? And you just came here to have a good time. But it's if that's something that was in kind of the back of your mind or if this is like you come to multiples of my shows and I'm kind of doing that consistently, you have this mindset of like, well, maybe... Maybe you do enjoy it, but like, I don't enjoy it enough or don't have the time to really do it. But I know that if I come see your show, I can get just kind of that little bit that I want that that's enough for me. And, and that's, that's, you're getting a bit more now out of my show, you know, whether or not like you got to see a funny doctor voice or whatever, you got a little bit more. And that's the thing that I creatively, that's that's kind of what I strive to do. I don't strive necessarily to make people laugh. Or to make people, you know, cry through a dramatic performance or anything like that. I strive to kind of make them feel involved in an active way when they see it. And then I want to tie that back into Drew Will Do It. Drew Will Do It is literally a show where I ask people to pitch me a show idea that they've always wanted to do. And then I help make that happen. Um... You may have thought like, oh, hey, I've got this podcast idea, but I don't have like a partner and all the, I don't have a co-host who could do it. And I don't feel comfortable just talking into a microphone by myself for, let's time it out, uh, an hour and 16 minutes. And, and I just don't know like, where do, if I record it, what do I get to record it? Where do I put it? What show do I do? Do I just, I don't want to just rip off another show that, cause then I'm comparing myself to that. And what I hope that the show does, and kind of the the reason that I do the show, because again, it's I don't I don't carry enough of a celebrity for the show to do well on its own merits for it to be like, oh well, I like to just put on a good show that everyone's going to hear, and the show is structurally designed so that no one can find it accidentally, more or less, because it's you can't search for the type of show that this is because it's not one type of show; it's basically a brand new podcast each episode. But what I've been able to do with it, at least so far, and kind of the people who have submitted show ideas to me, and we've workshopped them a bit, is I've been able to take a more active role in other people's kind of creative process, where you have this idea, or of this of this show that you've either always wanted to do, or the show that you've always wanted to see, but there's either been a logistical barrier for you, and you just like haven't known uh, literally how to put one up. Or there's like a personal barrier where it's, you could do one, but then what's the point if no one listens to it and you have to do all this work of, oh, I have to record it, then I have to edit it. I have to upload it somewhere to figure out where I'm going to do that. If I want it to be on iTunes, how do I figure that out? And then if I do all those things and then no one hears it, then what was the point? And I kind of want to remove, I, I hope that like with the show, whether whether it's you know people who have submitted an idea to the show or not, I like to think that what it does is it's showing you that if you want to be involved in something creative, 
there are ways if you don't necessarily want to be on stage and you just want to get some kind of creative outlet out there, there are, at least if you are with my shows, with anything that I'm putting on, I want you to always have a way that you can give some input and kind of get a little bit of a taste of that and kind of get that feeling of being on stage and hearing people have a good time because of your creative input, because of what you brought. Because I have been very fortunate to be able to do that, and I think that that feeling is one of the best things in the world, and I wouldn't want to keep that from anybody. And then also with this show, it's like... I had to, I found there to be a lot of friction. It was a lot of work of going like, what show is going to be worth putting on? How do I get it to be up on these different places? And all of those things were very, they were very like friction. They were like sandpaper to me just getting to do the creative thing that I wanted to do. And I would rather it not be that hard for everybody. I would rather if someone has like a creative idea and they're excited about it and they're passionate about it and it's, you know, like they've tested, they've really thought about it. They really want to do something. I want them to be able to put that out there. I think that's going to have value. Maybe not even necessarily for me, but for somebody out there is going to like hear that and then think like, Oh, that was a really funny thing. And it, you know, makes them relax for a little bit because it's just funny and it's good to laugh at, or it's thought provoking in some kind of way. Um, or it's just nice to have on and nice to hear. And I think that I can't give everybody in the world an internet connection and a microphone, but I can, I can, I can do that for some people, you know, I can give some people the opportunity to, uh, to do that. And I think that if you have the chance to, I guess the the thing that I, that I'll kind of uh, end off on, like with my, my creative philosophy is I feel like you should create the things for you that you want to create. And if it helps you, or if you're just kind of curious about my creative process, I think that there is a lot of potential for success creatively in inviting your audience kind of onto stage with you as much as, as much as, and whenever you can so that you can spread your success around and so that your failures don't quite hit you as hard. It's easy in performing, um, in, in any creative pursuit to get addicted to the feeling of when things kind of go well and you get to ride that high and then it, and then kind of really be devastated about when things don't go well, people don't care about your creations and, and you get, you have to hit that low. But, uh, if, if you're, if you're someone listening to this still, um, thank you. Um, and in your creative anyway, what I would advise you to try to do is based on kind of what I have had the most success with is whenever you can let your audience into what you're creating a bit more. You're, you're already sharing a lot of yourself, whether you mean to or not, whenever you create something. And if you can let the audience in a bit on it, you have the opportunity there to, to share the love, to share the wealth a little bit with how well a show can go there. And they're going to be there to help you whenever it doesn't go quite as well. That's going to soften that blow for you a little bit. And I think that's, been a thing that's kind of carried me through performance and creative pursuits a lot. Um, that's been Drew will do it uh, for this week. 
Um, this one doesn't have a funny name or funny title. Um, I guess I'll kick it to myself for all the plugs. Um, if you have an idea for a show that you want to do, or if you have feedback on an episode that we've done in the past, you want us to try to revisit or that you liked and want to offer, you know, critiques on or anything like that. Um, we are on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We are on Facebook. Um, we have an email account. So, um, just send us tweets to, what are all my accounts? I'm so bad at this. Um, we're on Twitter at Drew Will Podcast. We are on Instagram at. Oh, this is so difficult. Oh, I'm fucking it up. Oh, oh, I'm bombing here, guys. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ruin it. We're on Twitter at Drew Will Podcast. We're on Instagram at Drew Will Pod, and we can be reached uh, via email at DrewWillPod at gmail.com. We're also Drew Will Do It on Facebook. Um, at any point, submit us your show idea, um, whether you want to co-host it or if you just want to hear me do that. Um, if you liked this episode, also let us know. Um, if you like just me kind of rambling about creativity or rambling about anything else, um, let me know. And then I'll try to make this happen as often as possible. Um, but other than that, uh, thank you for listening to Drew Pod. Hope you check us out next time. If you didn't like this episode, you might like the next one. Thanks, y'all.